On one occasion, I saw a speaker stand. He was out of town, and he was to speak. He was the distinguished visitor. He looked left. He looked right. He looked at the audience, and then departed. <laughs> I think I'd better not do that. <laughs> My beloved brothers and sisters, as we gather once again in a general conference of the Church, I welcome you and express my love to you. We meet each six months to strengthen one another, to extend encouragement, to provide comfort, to build faith. We are here to learn. Some of you may be seeking answers to questions and challenges you are experiencing in your life. Some are struggling with disappointments or losses. Each can be enlightened and uplifted and comforted as the Spirit of the Lord is felt. Should there be changes which need to be made in your life, may you find the incentive and the courage to do so as you listen to the inspired words which will be spoken. May each of us resolve anew to live so that we're worthy sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. May we continue to oppose evil wherever it's found. How blessed we are to come to earth at such a time as this, marvelous time in a long history of the world. We cannot all be together under one roof, but we now have the ability to partake of the proceedings of this conference through the wonders of television, radio, cable, satellite transmission, and the Internet, even on mobile devices. We come together as one, speaking many languages, living in many lands, but all of one faith and one doctrine and one purpose. From a small beginning 182 years ago, our presence is now felt throughout the world. This great cause in which we're engaged will continue to go forth, changing and blessing lives as it does so. No cause, no force in the entire world can stop the work of God. Despite what comes, this great cause will go forward. You recall the prophetic words of the Prophet Joseph Smith? No unhallowed hand can stop the work from progressing. Persecutions may rage, mobs may combine, armies may assemble, calumny may defame, but the truth of God will go forth boldly, nobly, and independent till it has penetrated every continent, visited every clime, swept every country, and sounded in every ear till the purposes of God shall be accomplished and the great Jehovah shall say, The work is done. There is much that is difficult and challenging in the world today, my brothers and sisters, but there is also much that is good and uplifting. As we declare in our 13th article of faith, if there is anything virtuous, lovely, or of good report, or praiseworthy, 
We seek after these things, close quote. May we ever continue to do so. I thank you for your faith and devotion to the gospel. I thank you for the love and care you show one to another. I thank you for the service you provide in your wards and branches and in your states and districts. It is such service that enables the Lord to accomplish many of his purposes here upon the earth. I express my thanks to you for your kindnesses to me wherever I go. I thank you for your prayers in my behalf. I have felt those prayers and am most grateful for them. Now, my brothers and sisters, we've come to be instructed and inspired. Many messages will be shared during the next two days. I can assure you that those men and women who will address you have sought Heaven's help and direction as they have prepared their messages. They have been inspired concerning that which they will share with us. Our Heavenly Father is mindful of each of us and our needs. May we be filled with His Spirit as we partake of the proceedings of this conference. This is my sincere prayer in the sacred name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ has been called the most transcendent of all events from creation's dawn to the endless ages of eternity. That sacrifice is the central message of all the prophets. It was prefigured by the animal sacrifices prescribed by the law of Moses. A prophet declared that their whole meaning pointed to that last great sacrifice of the Son of God, yea, infinite and eternal. Jesus Christ endured incomprehensible suffering to make Himself a sacrifice for the sins of all. That sacrifice offered the ultimate good, the pure Lamb without blemish, for the ultimate measure of evil, the sins of the entire world. In the memorable words of Eliza R. Snow, his precious blood he freely spilt, his life he freely gave, a sinless sacrifice for guilt, a dying world to save. That sacrifice, the Atonement of Jesus Christ, is at the center of the plan of salvation. The incomprehensible suffering of Jesus Christ ended sacrifice by the shedding of blood. But it did not end the importance of sacrifice in the gospel plan. Our Savior requires us to continue to offer sacrifices, but the sacrifices He now commands are that we offer for a sacrifice unto Him a broken heart and a contrite spirit. He also commands each of us to love and serve one another. In effect, to offer a small imitation of His own sacrifice by making sacrifices of our own time and selfish priorities. In an inspired hymn, we sing, Sacrifice brings forth the blessings of heaven. 
I will speak of these mortal sacrifices our Savior asks us to make. This will not include sacrifices we are compelled to make or actions that may be motivated by personal advantage rather than service or sacrifice. The Christian faith has a history of sacrifice, including the ultimate sacrifice. In the early years of the Christian era, Rome martyred thousands for their faith in Jesus Christ. In later centuries, as doctrinal controversies divided Christians, some groups persecuted and even put to death the members of other groups. Christians killed by other Christians are the most tragic martyrs of the Christian faith. Many Christians have voluntarily given sacrifices motivated by faith in Christ and the desire to serve Him. Some have chosen to devote their entire adult lives to the service of the Master. This noble group includes those in the religious orders of the Catholic Church and those who have given lifelong service as Christian missionaries in various Protestant faiths. Their examples are challenging and inspiring. But most believers in Christ are neither expected nor able to devote their entire lives to religious service. For most followers of Christ, our sacrifices involve what we can do on a day-to-day -day basis in our ordinary personal lives. In that experience, I know of no group whose members make more sacrifices than Latter-day Saints. Their sacrifices, your sacrifices, my brothers and sisters, stand in contrast to the familiar worldly quest for personal fulfillment. My first examples are our Mormon pioneers. Their epic sacrifices of lives, family relationships, homes, and comforts are at the foundation of the restored gospel. Sarah Rich spoke for what motivated these pioneers when she described her husband Charles being called away on a mission. This truly was a trying time for me as well as for my husband, but duty called us to part for a season and knowing that we were obeying the will of the Lord, we felt to sacrifice our own feelings in order to help establish the work of helping to build up the kingdom of God on earth. Today, the most visible strength of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the unselfish service and sacrifice of its members. Prior to the dedication of one of our temples, a Christian minister asked President Gordon B. Hinckley why it did not contain any representation of the cross, the most common symbol of the Christian faith. President Hinckley replied that the symbols of our Christian faith are the lives of our people. Truly, our lives of service and sacrifice are the most appropriate expressions of our commitment to serve the Master and our fellow man. We have no professionally trained and salaried clergy in The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. As a result, the lay members who are called to lead and serve our congregations must carry the whole load of our numerous Church meetings, programs, and activities.
They do this in more than 14,000 congregations just in the United States and Canada. Of course, we are not unique in having lay members of our congregation serve as teachers and lay leaders, but the amount of time donated by our members to train and minister to one another is uniquely large. Our efforts to have each family in our congregations visited by home teachers each month and to have each adult woman visited by Relief Society visiting teachers each month are examples of this. We know of no comparable service in any organization in the world. The best-known examples of unique LDS service and sacrifice are the work of our missionaries. Currently, they number more than 50,000 young men and young women and over 5,000 adult men and women. They devote from six months to two years of their lives to teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and providing humanitarian service in more than 160 countries in the world. Their work always involves sacrifice, including the years they give to the work of the Lord and also the sacrifices made in providing funds for their support. Those who remain at home, parents and other family members, also sacrifice by foregoing the companionship and service of the missionaries they send forth. For example, a young Brazilian received a missionary call while he was working to support his brothers and sisters after his father and mother died. A general authority described these children's meeting in council and remembering that their deceased parents had taught them that they should always be prepared to serve the Lord. The young man accepted his missionary call, and a 16-year-old brother took over the responsibility of working to support the family. Most of us know of many other examples of sacrifice to serve a mission or to support a missionary. We know of no other voluntary service and sacrifice like this in any other organization in the world. We're frequently asked, how do you persuade your young people and your older members to leave their schooling or their retirement to sacrifice in this way? I've heard many give this explanation. Knowing what my Savior did for me, his grace in suffering for my sins and in overcoming death so I can live again, I feel privileged to make the small sacrifice I am asked to make in his service. I want to share the understanding he has given me. How do we persuade such followers of Christ to serve? As a prophet explained, we just ask them. Other sacrifices resulting from missionary service are the sacrifices of those who act on the teachings of the missionaries and become members of the Church. For many converts, these sacrifices are very significant, including the loss of friends and family associations. Many years ago, this conference heard of a young man who found the restored gospel while he was studying in the United States. 
As he was about to return to his native land, President Gordon B. Hinckley asked him what would happen to him when he returned home as a Christian. My family will be disappointed, the young man answered. They may cast me out and regard me as dead. As for my future and my career, all opportunity may be foreclosed against me. Are you willing to pay so great a price for the gospel? President Hinckley asked. Tearfully, the young man answered, It's true, isn't it? When that was affirmed, he replied, Then what else matters? That is the spirit of sacrifice among many of our new members. Other examples of service and sacrifice appear in the lives of the faithful members who serve in our temples. Temple service is unique to Latter-day Saints, but the significance of such service should be understandable to all Christians. Latter-day Saints have no tradition of service in a monastery, but we can still understand and honor the sacrifice of those whose Christian faith motivates them to devote their lives to that religious activity. In this conference just a year ago, President Thomas S. Monson shared an example of sacrifice in connection with temple service. A faithful Latter-day Saint father on a remote island in the Pacific did heavy physical work in a faraway place for six years to earn the money necessary to take his wife and ten children for marriage and sealing for eternity in the New Zealand temple. President Monson explained, those who understand the eternal blessings which come from the temple know that no sacrifice is too great, no price too heavy, no struggle too difficult in order to receive those blessings. I am grateful for the marvelous examples of Christian love, service, and sacrifice I have seen among the Latter-day Saints. I see you performing your Church callings, often at great sacrifice of time and means. I see you serving missions at your own expense. I see you cheerfully donating your professional skills in service to your fellow men. I see you caring for the poor through personal efforts and through supporting Church welfare and humanitarian contributions. All of this is affirmed in a nationwide study which concluded that active members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, quote, volunteer and donate significantly more than the average American and are even more generous in time and money than the upper 20 percent of religious people in America, end of quote. Such examples of giving to others strengthen all of us. They remind us of the Savior's teaching, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Perhaps the most familiar and most important examples of unselfish service and sacrifice are performed in our families. Mothers devote themselves to the bearing and nurturing of their children. Husbands give themselves to support their wives and children. The sacrifices involved in the eternally important service to our families are too numerous to mention and too familiar to need mention. 
I also see unselfish Latter-day Saints adopting children, including those with special needs, and seeking to provide foster children the hope and opportunities denied them by earlier circumstances. I see you caring for family members and neighbors who suffer from birth defects, mental and physical ailments, and the effects of advancing years. The Lord sees you also, and He has caused His prophets to declare that, as you sacrifice for each other and your children, the Lord will bless you. I believe that Latter-day Saints who give unselfish service and sacrifice in worshipful imitation of our Savior adhere to eternal values to a greater extent than any other group of people. Latter-day Saints look on their sacrifices of time and means as a part of their schooling and qualifying for eternity. This is the truth revealed in the lectures on faith, which teach that a religion that does not require the sacrifice of all things never has power sufficient to produce the faith necessary unto life and salvation. It is through this sacrifice and this only that God has ordained that man should enjoy eternal life. Just as the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ is at the center of the plan of salvation, we followers of Christ must make our own sacrifices to prepare for the destiny that plan provides for us. I know that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God, the Eternal Father. I know that because of His atoning sacrifice, we have the assurance of immortality and the opportunity for eternal life. He is our Lord, our Savior, and our Redeemer, and I testify of Him in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I love being with the full-time missionaries. They are full of faith and hope and genuine charity. Their missionary experience is like a mini-life packaged into 18 to 24 months. They arrive as spiritual infants with a serious appetite to learn, and they leave as mature adults seemingly ready to conquer any and all challenges placed before them. I also love the devoted senior missionaries who are full of patience and wisdom and calm assurance. They bring a gift of stability and love to the youthful energy that surrounds them. Together, the young missionaries and the senior couples are a powerful, persevering force for good, which is having a profound effect on their lives and upon the lives who are touched by their service. Recently, I listened to two of these great young missionaries as they reviewed their experiences and efforts. In that reflective moment, they considered the individuals that they had contacted that day, some of whom were more responsive than others. As they considered the circumstances, they asked, How can we help each individual develop a desire to know more about Heavenly Father? How do we help them feel His Spirit? How can we help them know that we love them? In my mind's eye, I could see these two young men three or four years after completing their missions. I visualized them as having found their eternal companion and serving in an elders' quorum 
or teaching a group of young men. Now, instead of thinking about their investigators, they were asking the same questions about their quorum members or the young men they were commissioned to nurture. I saw how their missionary experience could be applied as a template for nurturing others throughout the rest of their lives. As this army of righteous disciples return from their missions to the many countries across the earth, they are becoming key contributors in the work of establishing the Church. We thank you, you faithful missionaries. The Book of Mormon prophet Lehi might have been pondering the same set of questions as these missionaries when he listened to them and he listened to the response of his sons to the direction that had the, uh, the vision that he had been given. And thus Laman and Lemuel, being the eldest, did murmur against their father. They did murmur because they knew not the dealings of that God who had created them. Perhaps we have felt the frustration that Lehi experienced with his two eldest sons. As we face a drifting child, an uncommitted investigator, or an unresponsive prospective elder, our hearts swell as Lehi's did, and we ask, how can I help them feel and listen to the Spirit so that they are not caught up in worldly distractions? Two scriptures stand out in my mind that can help us find our way through these distractions and feel the power of His love. Nephi gives us a key to the door of learning through his own personal experience. Said he, I, Nephi, having great desires to know the mysteries of God, wherefore I did cry unto the Lord, and behold, he did visit me, and did soften my heart that I did believe all the words which had been spoken by, to my father, by my father. Wherefore, I did not rebel against him like unto my brothers. Awakening the desire to know enables our spiritual capacities to hear the voice of heaven. Finding a way to awaken and nurture that desire is the quest and responsibility of each of us—missionaries, parents, teachers, leaders, and members. As we feel that desire stirring in our hearts, we are, pre we are prepared to benefit from the learning of this second scripture that I want to mention. In June of 1831, as calls were being extended to early Church leaders, Joseph Smith was told that Satan is abroad in the land, and he goeth forth deceiving the nations. To combat this distracting influence, the Lord said that He would give us a pattern in all things, that we may not be deceived. Patterns are templates, guides, repeating steps, or a path one follows to stay aligned with God's purpose. If followed, we will be kept humble, awake, and able to discern the voice of the Holy Spirit from those voices that distract us and lead us away. The Lord then instructs us, He that trembleth under my power shall be made strong and shall bring forth fruits of praise and wisdom according to the revelations and truths I have given you. The blessing of humble prayer offered with real intent allows the Holy Spirit to touch our hearts and helps us remember what we, have, what we knew before we were born into this mortal experience. As we clearly understand our Heavenly Father's plan for us, we begin to acknowledge our responsibility to help others learn and understand His plan. Closely tied to helping others remember, 
the way we the way we personally is the way we personally live the gospel and apply it in our lives when we actually live the gospel in the pattern taught by the lord jesus christ our ability to help others increases the following experience is an example of how this principle can work two young missionaries knocked on a door hoping to find someone to receive their message the door opened, and a rather large man greeted them in a less-than-friendly voice. I thought I told you not to knock on my door again. I warned you before that if you ever came back, it would not be a pleasant experience. Now leave me alone. He quickly closed the door. As the elders walked away, the older, more experienced missionary put his arm on the younger missionary's shoulder to comfort him and encourage him. Unknown to them, the man watched them through the window to be sure they understood his message. He fully expected to see them laugh and make light of his curt response to their attempted visit. However, as he witnessed the expression of kindness between the two missionaries, his heart was instantly softened. He reopened the door, and he asked the missionaries to come back and share their message with him. It is when we yield to his will and live his pattern that his spirit is felt. The Savior taught, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. This principle of having love one to another and developing our ability to be Christ-centered in how we think, speak, and act is fundamental in becoming disciples of Christ and teachers of his gospel. Awakening this desire prepares us to look for the promised patterns. Seeking for the patterns leads us to the doctrine of Christ as taught by the Savior and his prophet leaders. One pattern of this doctrine is to endure until the end. And blessed are they who shall seek to bring forth my Zion at that day, for they shall have the gift and the power of the Holy Ghost. And if they endure until the end, they shall be lifted up at the last day and shall be saved in the everlasting kingdom of the Lamb. What is the ultimate means by which we can enjoy the gift and power of the Holy Ghost? It is the power that comes by being faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. It is our love for him and our fellow man. It is the Savior who defined this pattern of love when he taught us, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. President Hinckley confirmed this principle when he said, To love the Lord is not just counsel. It's not just well-wishing. It is a commandment. Love of God is the root of all virtue, of all goodness, of all strength of character, of all fidelity to do right. The Father's plan designated the pattern of the family to help us learn, apply, and understand the power of love. On the day my own family was organized, my sweet Anne and I went to the temple and entered into the covenant of marriage. How much I thought I loved her on that day, but I had only begun to see the vision of love. As each of our children and grandchildren entered into our lives, our love has been expanded to love each of them equally and fully. There is seemingly no end to the expansive capacity to love. The feeling of love from our Heavenly Father is like a gravitational pull from heaven 
as we move the distractions that pull us towards the world and exercise our agency to seek Him, we open our hearts to a celestial force which draws us to Him. Nephi described its impact as even to the consuming of his flesh. This same power of love caused Alma to sing a song of redeeming love. It touched Mormon in such a way that he counseled us to pray with all the energy of our heart that we might be filled with his love. Both modern and ancient scripture are full of reminders of Heavenly Father's eternal love for his children. I am confident that our Heavenly Father's arms are constantly extended, ever, ever ready to embrace each one of us and to say to each one with that quiet, piercing voice, I love you. Because of the heaven-designed pattern of the family, we more fully understand how our Heavenly Father truly loves each of us equally and fully. I testify that this is true. God does know and love us. He has given us a vision of this holy place and called prophets and apostles to teach the principles and the patterns that will bring us back to Him. As we strive to awaken the desire to know in ourselves and in others, and as we live the patterns we discover, we will be drawn towards Him. I testify that Jesus is the very Son of God, our exemplar, our beloved Redeemer, which I express in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I love the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Sometimes we use the terms gospel and church interchangeably, but they are not the same. They are, however, exquisitely interconnected, and we need both. The gospel is the glorious plan of God in which we, as His children, are given the opportunity to receive all that the Father has. This is called eternal life and is described as the greatest of all the gifts of God. A vital part of the plan is our earthly experience, a time to develop faith, to repent, and to reconcile ourselves with God. Knowing our mortal frailties would make this life profoundly difficult, as there would be opposition in all things, and that we could not cleanse our own sins, a Savior was needed. When Elohim, the eternal God and Father of all our spirits, presented his plan of salvation, there was one among us who said, Here am I, send me. His name was Jehovah. Born of a heavenly father, both spiritually and physically, he possessed the omnipotence to overcome the world. Born of an earthly mother, he was subject to the pain and suffering of mortality. The great Jehovah was also named Jesus and additionally was given the title of Christ, meaning the Messiah or Anointed One. His crowning achievement was the Atonement, wherein Jesus the Christ descended below all things, making it possible for Him to pay a redeeming ransom for each of us. The Church was established by Jesus Christ during His earthly ministry, built upon the foundation of the Apostles and Prophets. In this, the dispensation of the fullness of times, the Lord restored what once was, specifically telling the prophet Joseph Smith, I will establish a church by your hand. Jesus Christ was and is 
the head of his church, represented on earth by prophets holding apostolic authority. This is a magnificent church. Its organization, effectiveness, and sheer goodness are respected by all who sincerely seek to understand it. The church has programs for children, youth, men, and women. It has beautiful meeting houses that now number more than 18,000. Majestic temples now totaling 136 dot the earth, with another 30 under construction or announced. A full-time missionary force of over 56,000, comprised of the young and less so, are serving in 150 countries. The Church's worldwide humanitarian work is a marvelous display of the generosity of our members. Our welfare system cares for our members and promotes self-reliance in a manner unduplicated anywhere. In this Church, we have selfless lay leaders and a community of saints that are willing to serve one another in a remarkable way. There is nothing like this Church in all the world. When I was born, our family lived in a tiny cottage on the grounds of one of the great and historic meeting houses of the Church, the Honolulu Tabernacle. I now apologize to my dear friends in the presiding bishopric who oversee the facilities of the Church, but as a boy, I climbed over and under and through every inch of that property. From the bottom of the water-filled reflecting pool to the top of the inside of the imposing lighted steeple. We even swung Tarzan-like on the long-hanging vines of the huge banyan trees that are on the site. The Church was everything to us. We went to lots of meetings, even more than we have today. We attended primary on Thursday afternoons. Release Society meetings were on Tuesday mornings. Mutual for the Youth was Wednesday night. Saturday was for ward activities. On Sunday, men and young men would go to priesthood meeting in the morning. Midday, we would attend Sunday school. Then in the evening, we returned for sacrament meeting. With comings and goings and meetings, it seemed our time was consumed with Church activities all day Sunday and most other days of the week. As much as I loved the Church, it was during those boyhood days that for the first time I had a sense there was something even more. When I was five years old, a major conference was held at the Tabernacle. We walked down the lane on which we lived and over a small bridge leading to the stately meeting house and sat on about the tenth row in the large chapel. Presiding and speaking at the meeting was David O. McKay, the president of the Church. I do not recall anything he said, but I vividly remember what I saw and what I felt. President McKay was dressed in a cream-colored suit and with his wavy white hair looked very regal. In the tradition of the islands, he wore a triple-thick red carnation lei. As he spoke, I felt something quite intense and very personal. I later understood I was feeling the influence of the Holy Spirit. We sang the closing hymn, Who's on the Lord's side, who? Now is the time to show. 
we ask it fearlessly. Who's on the Lord's side? Who? With those words being sung by nearly 2,000 people, but seeming to be a question posed just to me, I wanted to stand and say, I am. Some have come to think of activity in the Church as the ultimate goal. Therein lies a danger. It is possible to be active in the Church and less active in the Gospel. Let me stress, activity in the Church is a highly desirable goal. However, it is insufficient. Activity in the Church is an outward indication of our spiritual desire. If we attend our meetings, hold and fulfill Church responsibilities, and serve others, it is publicly observed. By contrast, the things of the Gospel are usually less visible and more difficult to measure, but they are of greater eternal importance. For example, how much faith do we really have? How repentant are we? How meaningful are the ordinances in our lives? How focused are we on our covenants? I repeat, we need the gospel and the Church. In fact, the purpose of the Church is to help us live the gospel. We often wonder, how can someone be fully active in the Church as a youth and then not be when they are older? How can an adult who has regularly attended and served stop coming? How can a person who is disappointed by a leader or another member allow that to end their Church participation? Perhaps the reason is they were not sufficiently converted to the gospel, the things of eternity. I suggest three fundamental ways to have the gospel be our foundation. One, deepen our understanding of deity. A sustained knowledge of and love for the three members of the Godhead are indispensable. Mindfully pray to the Father in the name of the Son, and seek direction from the Holy Ghost. Coupled with constant study and humble pondering, continually build unshakable faith in Jesus Christ. For how knoweth a man the Master, who is a stranger unto him, and is far from the thoughts and intents of his heart? 2. Focus on the ordinances and covenants. If there are any of the essential ordinances yet to be performed in your life, intently prepare to receive each of them. Then we need to establish the discipline to live faithful to our covenants, fully using the weekly gift of the sacrament. Many of us are not being regularly changed by its cleansing power because of our lack of reverence for this holy ordinance. 3. Unite the gospel with the Church. Concentrating on the gospel, the Church will become more, not less, of a blessing in our lives. As we come to each meeting prepared to seek learning even by study and also by faith, the Holy Spirit will be our teacher. If we come to be entertained, we often will be disappointed. 
President Spencer W. Kimball was once asked, what do you do when you find yourself in a boring sacrament meeting? His response, I don't know. I've never been in one. In our lives, we should desire what occurred after the Lord came to the people of the New World and established His Church. The scriptures read, And it came to pass that thus they, meaning His disciples, did go forth among all the people of Nephi and did preach the gospel of Christ unto all people upon the face of the land. And they were converted unto the Lord and were united unto the church of Christ. And thus the people of that generation were blessed. The Lord wants the members of his church to be fully converted to his gospel. This is the only sure way to have spiritual safety now and happiness forever. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. As years pass, many details in my life are becoming more and more dim, but some of the memories that remain most clear are the births of each of our children. Heaven seemed so near, and if I try, I can almost feel those same feelings of reverence and wonder that I experienced each time one of those precious infants was placed in my arms. Our children are in heritage of the Lord. He knows and loves each one with perfect love. What a sacred responsibility Heavenly Father places upon us as parents to partner with Him in helping His choice spirits become what He knows they can become. This divine privilege of raising our children is a much greater responsibility than we can do alone without the Lord's help. He knows exactly what our children need to know, what they need to do, and what they need to be to come back into His presence. He gives mothers and fathers specific instruction and guidance through the scriptures, His prophets, and the Holy Ghost. In a Latter-day Revelation through the prophet Joseph Smith, the Lord instructs parents to teach their children to understand the doctrine of repentance, faith in Christ, baptism, and the gift of the Holy Ghost. Notice the Lord doesn't just say we are to teach the doctrine. His instructions are to teach our children to understand the doctrine. In Psalms we read, Give me understanding, and I shall keep thy law. Yea, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Teaching our children to understand is more than just imparting information. It's helping our children get the doctrine into their hearts in a way that it becomes part of their very being and is reflected in their attitudes and behavior throughout their lives. Nephi taught that the role of the Holy Ghost is to carry the truth unto the hearts of the children of men. Our role as parents is to do all we can to create an atmosphere where our children can feel the Spirit and then help them recognize what they are feeling. I'm reminded of a phone call that I received several years ago from our daughter, Michelle. With tender emotion, she said, Mom, I just had the most incredible experience with Ashley. Ashley is her daughter, who was five years old at the time. 
Michelle described the morning as being one of constant squabbling between Ashley and three-year-old Andrew. One wouldn't share and the other would hit. After helping them work things out, Michelle went to check the baby. Soon, Ashley came running in, angry that Andrew wasn't sharing. Michelle reminded Ashley of the commitment they had made in home evening to be more kind to each other. She asked Ashley if she wanted to pray and ask for Heavenly Father's help. But Ashley, still very angry, responded, No. When asked if she believed Heavenly Father would answer her prayer, Ashley said she didn't know. Her mother asked her to try and gently took her hands and knelt down with her. Michelle suggested that Ashley could ask Heavenly Father to help Andrew share and help her be kind. The thought of Heavenly Father helping her little brother share must have piqued Ashley's interest, and she began to pray, first asking Heavenly Father to help Andrew share. As she asked him to help her be kind, she began to cry. Ashley ended her prayer and buried her head on her mother's shoulder. Michelle held her and asked why she was crying. Ashley said she didn't know. Her mother said, I think I know why you're crying. Do you feel good inside? Ashley nodded, and her mother continued, This is the Spirit helping you feel this way. It's Heavenly Father's way of telling you He loves you and will help you. She asked Ashley if she believed this, if she believed Heavenly Father could help her. With her little eyes full of tears, Ashley said she did. Sometimes the most powerful way to teach our children to understand a doctrine is to teach in the context of what they are experiencing right at that moment. These moments are spontaneous and unplanned and happen in the normal flow of family life. They come and go quickly. So we need to be alert and recognize a teaching moment when our children come to us with a question or worry, when they have problems getting along with siblings or friends, when they need to control their anger, when they make a mistake, or when they need to make a decision. If we are ready and will let the Spirit guide in these situations, our children will be taught with greater effect and understanding. Just as important are the teaching moments that come as we thoughtfully plan regular occasions such as family prayer, family scripture study, family home evening, and other family activities. In every teaching situation, all learning and all understanding are best nurtured in an atmosphere of warmth and love where the Spirit is present. About two months before his children turned eight years old, one father would set aside time each week to prepare them for baptism. His daughter said that when it was her turn, he gave her a journal, and they sat together, just the two of them, and discussed and shared feelings about gospel principles. He had her draw a visual aid as they went along. It showed the premortal existence, this earth life, and each step she needed to take to return to live with Heavenly Father. He bore his testimony about each step of the plan of salvation as he taught it to her. When his daughter recalled this experience after she was grown, she said, I will never forget the love I felt from my dad as he spent that time with me. I believe that this experience was a major reason I had a testimony of the gospel when I was baptized. 
Teaching for understanding takes determined and consistent effort. It requires teaching by precept and by example, and especially by helping our children live what they learn. President Harold B. Lee taught, Without experiencing a gospel principle in action, it is more difficult to believe in that principle. I first learned to pray by kneeling with my family in family prayer. I was taught the language of prayer as I listened to my parents pray and as they helped me say my first prayers. I learned that I could talk to Heavenly Father and ask for guidance. Every morning without fail, my mother and father gathered us around the kitchen table before breakfast, and we knelt in family prayer. We prayed at every meal. In the evening before bed, we knelt together in the living room and closed the day with family prayer. Although there was much I didn't understand about prayer as a child, it became such a part of my life that it stayed with me. I still continue to learn, and my understanding of the power of prayer still continues to grow. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland said, We all understand that the success of the gospel message depends upon its being taught and then understood and lived in such a way that its, that its promise of happiness and salvation can be realized. Learning to fully understand the doctrines of the gospel is the process of a lifetime and comes line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little. As children learn and act upon what they learn, their understanding is expanded, which leads to more learning, more action, and even greater and more enduring understanding. We can know our children are beginning to understand the doctrine when we, receive it, when we see it revealed in their attitudes and actions without external threats or rewards. As our children learn to understand gospel doctrines, they become more self-reliant and more responsible. They become part of the solution to our family challenges and make a positive contribution to the environment of our home. We will teach our children to understand as we take advantage of every teaching situation, invite the Spirit, set the example, and help them live what they learn. When we look into the eyes of a tiny infant, we are reminded of the song, I am a child of God, and so my needs are great. Help me understand His words before it grows too late. Lead me, guide me, walk beside me, help me find the way. Teach me all that I must do to live with Him someday. May we do so. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Years ago, on a cold night on the train, in a train station in Japan, I heard a tap on my, the window of my sleeper car. There stood a freezing boy wearing a ragged shirt with a dirty rag tied about the swollen jaw. His head was covered with scabies. He held a rusty tin can and a spoon, the symbol of an orphan beggar. As I struggled to open the door to give him money, the train pulled out. I will never forget 
that starving little boy left standing in a cold, holding up an empty tin can. Nor can I forget how helpless I felt as the train pulled slowly away and left him standing on the platform. Some years later, in Cusco, a city high in the Andes, Peru, A. Theodore Tuttle and I held a sacrament meeting in a long, narrow room that opened onto the street. It was a cold night, and uh, while Elder Tuttle spoke, a tiny little boy, perhaps six years old, appeared in the doorway. He wore only a ragged shirt that went about to his knees. On her left was a small table with a plate of bread for the sacrament. This starving street orphan saw the bread and ate slowly along the wall toward it. He was almost to the table when a woman on the aisle saw him. With a stern toss of her head, she banished him out into the night. I groaned within myself. Later, the little boy returned. He slid along the wall, glancing from the bread to me, and when he was near the point where the woman would see him again, I held out my arms. He came running to me. I held him on my lap. Then there's something symbolic. I set him on Elder Tuttle's chair. After the closing prayer, the hungry little boy darted out into the night. When I returned home, I told President Spencer W. Kimball about my experience. He was deeply moved and told me, you were holding a nation on your lap. He said to me more than once, that experience has far greater meaning than you have yet come to know. As I have visited Latin American countries nearly a hundred times, I've looked for that little boy in the faces of the people. Now I do know what President Kimball meant. I met another shivering boy on the streets of Salt Lake City. It was late on another cold winter night. We were leaving a Christmas dinner at a hotel. Down the street came six or eight noisy boys. All of them should have been at home and out of the cold. One boy had no coat. He bounced about, about very rapidly to stave off the chill. He disappeared down the side street, no doubt to a small, shabby apartment and a bed that did not have enough covers to keep him warm. At night, when I pull the covers over me, I offer a prayer for those who have no warm bed to go to. I was stationed in Japan at Osaka when the World War II closed. The city was rubble, and the street was littered with blocks and debris and bomb craters. Although most of the trees had been blasted away, some few of them still stood with shattered limbs and trunks and had the courage to send forth a few twigs and leaves. A tiny girl dressed in a ragged colored kimono was busily gathering yellow sycamore leaves into a bouquet. The little child seemed unaware of the devastation that surrounded her as she scrambled over the rubble to add new leaves to her collection. She had found the one beauty left in her world. Perhaps I should say she was the beautiful part of her world. Somehow to think of her increases my faith. Embodied in the child was hope. 
Mormon taught that little children are alive in Christ and need not repent. Around the turn of the century, two missionaries were laboring in the mountains of southern United States. One day from a hilltop, they saw people gathering in a clearing far below. The missionary did not often have many people to whom they might preach, so they made their way down to the clearing. A little boy had drowned. There was to be a funeral. His parents had sent for the minister to say words over their son. The missionary stood back as the itinerant ministry faced the grieving father and mother and began his sermon. If the parents expected to receive comfort from this man of the cloth, they'd be disappointed. He scolded them severely for not having had that little boy baptized. They'd put it off because of one thing or another, and now it was too late. He told them very bluntly that their little boy had gone to hell, and it was their fault. They were to blame for his endless torment. After the sermon was over and the grave was covered, the elders approached the grieving parents. We are servants of the Lord, they told the mother, and we have come with a message for you. As the sobbing parents listened, the two elders read from their revelations and bore their testimony of the restoration of the keys of redemption of both the living and the dead. I have some sympathy for that preacher. He was doing the best he could with such light and knowledge as he had. But there's more that he should have been able to offer. There's the fullness of the gospel. The elders came as comforters, as teachers, as servants of the Lord, as authorized ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. These children of whom I spoke represent all of our Heavenly Father's children. Children are in heritage of the Lord, and happy is the man that has his quiver full of them. The creation of life is a great responsibility for a married couple. It is a challenge of mortality to be a worthy and responsible parent. Neither man nor woman can bear children alone. It was meant that children have two parents, both a father and a mother. No other pattern or process can replace this one. Long ago, a woman tearfully told me that as a college student, she'd made a serious mistake with her boyfriend. He had arranged for an abortion. In due time, they graduated and were married and had several other children. She told me how tormented she now was to look at her family, her beautiful children, and see in her mind the place empty now where the one child was missing. If this couple understands and applies the atonement, they will know that those experiences and the pain connected with them can be erased. No pain will last forever. It is not easy, but life was never meant to be either easy or fair. Repentance and the lasting hope that forgiveness brings will always be worth the effort. Another young couple cheerfully told me that they had just come from a doctor where they were told that they would be unable to have children of their own. They were brokenhearted with the news. They were surprised when I told them that 
they were actually quite fortunate. They wondered, why would I say such a thing? I told them their state was infinitely better than other couples who were capable of being parents, but who rejected and selfishly avoided that responsibility. Still others remain unmarried and therefore childless. Some due to circumstances beyond their control are raising children as single mothers and single fathers. These are temporary states. In the eternal scheme of things, not always in mortality, righteous yearning and longing will be fulfilled. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. The ultimate end of all activity in the church is to see a husband and his wife and their children happy at home, protected by the principles and laws of the gospel, sealed safely in the covenants of the everlasting priesthood. Husbands and wives should understand that their first calling, from which they will never be released, is to one another and then to their children. One of the great discoveries of parenthood is that we learn far more about what really matters from our children than ever we did from our parents. We come to recognize the truth in Isaiah's prophecy that a little child shall lead them. In Jerusalem, Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them and said, Verily I say unto you, Except ye are converted and become as the little children, ye shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever there shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, Suffer the little children and forbid them not to come to me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hand on them, and departed then. We read in the Book of Mormon of a visit of Jesus Christ to the New World. He healed and blessed and commanded that their little children should be brought to him. Nephi records, they brought their little children and set them down upon the ground round about him. And Jesus stood in their midst, and the multitude gave way till they had all been brought into him. He then commanded the people to kneel. With the children around him, the Savior knelt and offered a prayer unto our Father in heaven. After the prayer, the Savior wept, and he took their little children one by one and blessed them and prayed unto the Father for them. And when he had done this, he wept again. I can understand the feelings expressed by the Savior toward children. There's much to be learned from following his example in seeking to pray or bless and teach these little ones. I was number 10 in a family of 11 children. So far as I know, neither my mother nor my father served in a prominent calling in the church. Our parents served faithfully in their most important calling as parents. Our father led our home in righteousness, never with anger or fear. And the powerful example of our father is magnified by the tender counsel of our mother. 
the gospel is a powerful influence in the life of everyone of us in the Packer family and to the next generation and the next generation and the next as far as we have seen. I hope to be judged as good a man as my father before I hear those words, well done from my heavenly father. I hope first to hear them from my mortal father. Many times I have puzzled over why I should be called an apostle and, and as president of the Quorum of the Twelve, in spite of having come from a home where the father could be termed as less active. I'm not the only member of the Twelve who fits that description. Finally, I could see and understand that it may have been because of that circumstance that I was called, and I could understand why. In all that we do in the church, we need to provide the way as leaders for parents and children to have time together as families. Priests and leaders must be careful to make the church family-friendly. There are many things about living the gospel of Jesus Christ that cannot be measured by that which is counted or charted in regular attendance. We busy ourselves with buildings and budgets and programs and procedures in doing so, it is possible to overlook the very spirit of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Too often, someone comes to me and says, President Packer, would it be, wouldn't it be nice if? I usually stop them and say no, because I suspect that what follows will be a new activity, a program that is going to add a burden of time, my financial means, on the family. Family time is sacred time and should be protected and respected. We urge our members to show devotion to their families. When we were first married, my wife and I decided that we'd accept the children that would be born to us with the responsibility of attending their birth and growth. In due time, they have formed families of their own. Twice in our marriage, at the time of birth of one of our little boys, We've had a doctor say, I don't think you're going to keep this one. Both times, this brought a response from us that we would give our lives if our tiny son would keep his. In the course of that offer, it dawned on us that this same devotion is akin to what Heavenly Father feels about each of us. What a supernal thought. Now in the sunset of our lives, Sister Packer and I understand and have the willingness and the witness that our families can be forever. As we obey the commandments and live the gospel fully, we will be protected and blessed with our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Our prayer is that each one of our growing family will have that same devotion toward those precious little ones. Fathers and mothers, next time you cradle a newborn child in your arms, you can have an inner vision of the mysteries and purpose of life. You better understand why the church is as it is and why the family is the basic organization in time and in eternity. I bear witness that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true and the plan of redemption which has been called a plan of happiness, is a plan for families 
and pray the Lord that the families of the church will be blessed, parents and children, that this work can roll forth as a father intends, and bear that witness in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.